Welcome back to Microdigressions. This is Spencer Case. One of the things philosophers are most interested in is knowledge. What is it? And why should we care about acquiring it? And how should we acquire it? So here to address that question with me, or those questions, is uh, Professor Crispin Sartwell. How are you doing, Crispin? I'm good. How are you, Spencer? Not too bad. I've been telling you about the job market uh, pressure. Uh, it sounds like that's something you can relate to. And, well, not, uh, not lately, though. I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, oh, yeah. like it's been a while since I was in that phase, yeah. But uh, I guess that's right. Now, the other thing, the other thing that's occupying a lot of my mental space this week is, uh, you know, what happened in Boulder. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I went to graduate school there. I went into that supermarket many times. It wasn't where I normally shopped, but because it was kind of on the other end of town. But if I were going to Denver or something, I would I would stop there and grab a snack or something. So two of my uh, kids live there. Yeah. Yeah, two of my kids live there. Uh, one went to Colorado as an undergraduate, and the other one got an MA at Naropa, but they're both uh, living out there ever since, I guess. But yeah, um, yeah, I'm thinking about that too. It's strange. I mean, one set of thoughts I have is, it's sort of sickening how much I care about what this person's motives were for murdering 10 people. It's like I find myself at the edge of my seat thinking who's going to be the killer and what is this person's motive. And then I, I, I think that just the very fact that I have that thought is an incentive for people to do things like that. You know, like what's in the, these people's heads is like uh, the most interesting thing uh, in the world for people, you know? Well, I hadn't really quite thought of it like that. Uh, yeah, I guess it's instant publicity. Like everyone's sitting there wondering, okay, what ideology or what, you know, illness is in play here or something like that, you know? Um, hmm. Yeah. Well, I don't know. And, you know, the, the, it's a, it's a dilemma for the media in terms of what, how to cover it, you know, that doesn't lead to cop. I mean, why do they seem to break out in, you know, clusters or whatever? Yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe because of the media coverage or whatever, you know. So um I don't know, it's it's quite a dilemma to to know how to consume the news. And then at such a distance, right? Like I don't know, but um anyway. And then the knowledge, right? The knowledge that the discourse around this is going to be so ugly where you're going to have these two political factions each trying to tar the other with association with the same criminal. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. Or so one side is now gloating that it's not white supremacists after all. And another side is, uh, you know, uh, anyway, like it's right. Immediately everyone feeds it into their narrative or whatever. And yeah. Yeah. Well, it's uh, yeah, it's a disturbing thing and it's an upsetting thing. And it seems like it's going to be with us for some time. These episodes. Yeah. Well, to get on with our, our feature presentation, which is about knowledge, I wanted to talk to you initially about the standpoint of epistemology, because I was intrigued by your conversation with uh, Dan Kaufman on, on his podcast. Mm -hmm. But then we decided, well, you didn't want to rehash the things that you'd said there. And so we decided on having a broader conversation about knowledge. But, you know, we've each got a lot to say about that. So it sounds interesting enough. Y you study aesthetics, which is, uh, or have, you know, I know you've done work in that area. I'm wondering first, what got you into that area of philosophy? Because it's not, 
I, I, it seems like it's like philosophy of religion. Like a lot of philosophers will see it as like a, a second tier kind of subdiscipline. It isn't True. fully respectable or something. So I'm interested in what got you into that and whether it informs your approach to epistemology and questions of knowledge. Uh, well, I mean, I guess I, I, I kind of I had very vivid experiences of art as a teenager, especially vis visual arts. Like uh, I grew up in D.C. and I kind of had, uh, you know, quasi religious experiences like as a 16 year old in the with the Vermeers and the Rembrandts, especially Northern European, actually, and some other stuff too. And anyway, but I had a really great, when I got to under, uh, you know, being an undergraduate at Maryland, I, I had a really great aesthetics teacher, this guy named Gerald Levinson. And so then I started thinking like, okay, so I, I'm going to try to account for these, some of the more profound experiences I felt that I had had up to that time, you know? And, um, and, you know, and he, you know, the, and, and he presented aesthetics in a in a very rigorous, analytic vein, uh, challenging conceptually. And then also the fact that, you know, most of the even most of the philosophy majors were were actually not that interested in that area or not. The, the fact that it was a little bit of a satellite area actually attracted me like, you know, maybe there's more creative work to be done in this in a way like more open space. But plus, I was just fascinated by the questions, you know, uh, what is art and all that. I, you know, I, I think in some ways, I mean, my dissertation was in aesthetics and uh, my first book. And I think in some ways, like aesthetics informs everything that I do. I, you know, I wrote a book called Political Aesthetics. So I was trying to do political theory and aesthetics. Now, I've thought less about epistemology and aesthetics. I mean, in some ways, it's pretty, um, I mean, these aren't, maybe don't go directly to questions about knowledge, but I think that uh, aesthetic standards are important in science, for example, right? Like, um, you know, even Occam's razor. I mean, I basically read that as an aesthetic principle. Like, uh, in fact, like if you look at some traditional, maybe sort of British empiricist style definitions of beauty, um, they talk about like sort of um, the the greatest profusion of uh, phenomena from the simplest possible, or, you know, in in the context of the of the greatest possible unity, or like some kind of maximal ratio of variety and unity. That's the way like Francis Hutcheson defines beauty. Well, I mean, Occam's Razor, let's say, would be a good example of that. Like a single, you want to, you know. You want to explain as much as possible with the simplest possible principle. Now, I don't know that that can be epistemically justified directly, right? Like the, the simplest hypothesis is most likely to be true. You know, that would require an independent argument. You know, it's probably not exactly true. Of course, what is simplicity? But it's kind of an aesthetic standard as well as maybe like a kind of, um, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's it may be cognitively economical in a way to take the, you know what I mean? Like there's, um, there's other reasons too, but I, so I think like aesthetic, I think these values are intertwined in various ways, like knowledge and beauty, for instance, even, I don't know. I don't know though. Uh, I, I, I would love to like think, really think about aesthetic epistemology and what that would look like or vice versa, you know, epistemological aesthetics. I don't know.
But um, yeah, so yeah, it seems like there is a lot of fresh work to be done there. Like, what is a a beautiful knower or a beautiful inquirer, or a beautiful inquiry? Uh, I or have a beautiful about, theory. Yeah, beautiful theories. I have heard some talk about that, right? Yeah, what you're talking about with simplicity, and it makes me wonder. Yeah, so what would be the relationship between beauty and truth there? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you could say that um, the beauty of uh, simplicity is explained by some prior principle of the way human cognition works or something, or you could say something less reductionistic and say that there's, there's some kind of transcendental relationship between beauty and truth. Right. A la Plato or, or, uh, yeah. So, right. So Occam's razor could be a, like a pure way to find the truth. If we do live in a certain kind of universe, yeah. Right? Like a universe that does rest on on the simplest formulable principles or something like that, you know. So it's either kind of a metaphysical theory, in which case it would lead you toward truth. You know, like a kind of almost platonic theory, like it's it's just a beautiful universe. And so a beautiful theory, only a beautiful theory can account for it. Or something. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, but I, but otherwise, though it seems like the beauty of a theory and its truth might come apart. Maybe that is a problem, right? Like a real problem. I feel like maybe in, in some, in some ways in philosophy, sometimes you can get seduced by the neatness of a answer or like philosophers have been maybe misled by, uh, you know, just how lovely this, this move is in the, uh, in the argument, you know, and, you know, and maybe led, led away from truth. I mean, beauty and truth have to come apart in some, in some ways too, I guess, you know, I don't know. Uh, yeah. Maybe, maybe a picture of Dorian Gray, picture of Dorian Gray type cases. <laughs> yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Something that seems that looks great, but is really evil or whatever, you know? I mean, I guess like ethics and epistemology have been running together very strongly over the last couple of decades, maybe, right? Like, um, you know, sort of the rise of virtue epistemology and, you know, even y- your work is along these lines too, right? Like, uh, or some of it that, um, or I guess one thing I saw anyway, yeah, is, you know, ethics, the, the connection of ethics, ethical value and epistemic value. Um, that, that seems like an easier direct case to make. But I would like to think more about the aesthetic side of it, too, though. Yeah, yeah. So I'm very big into um, arguing for epistemic empirism, which is to say that I think epistemic values are r- related to, influenced by moral and pragmatic assessments. So I argue for that at length. A number of other people argue that. And there is some talk about um Beauty and Ethics. So Colin McGinn's book, Colin McGinn's got a book on on fiction and evil. I've been reading, I'm almost done with it. And it's very good about uh, what is a beautiful character and the connecting beauty, beauty and, and, um, and and ethics in that way. It's, it's a very fascinating read. I recommend it. Um, This is, this is a traditional theme. I mean, Kant did this uh, even before the critiques. I'm trying to remember the name of the work where it basically takes an aesthetic approach to ethics, you know, like the beautiful character. Again, someone like Hutchinson or Shaftesbury, 
uh, are, you know, I, of course, sometimes it's just a tribute to the beauty of a, you know, the beautiful character of a saint or something like that. But it, that is a commonplace, right? Like an aesthetic appreciation of, of you know, ethical heroism or, or a saintly character or something like that, you know? Maybe in Confucius and stuff like this as well. Oh, yeah. That's true. Yes. Um, yeah. I could see like it Like the beautiful character, like shaped almost like a piece of jade or something like that, you know? I mean, I guess my position really that I've sketched out is that in some sense, all these values are intertwined. Like in some way, if you get any of them, you sort of dip into the others. They're like, they're not identical, but they're they're complexly related. And so you can always... So like, you you know, epistemic value has to be at the heart of a lot of these other values. It, like, is this ethical claim true? You know, or like, how is knowledge in this area possible? Is knowledge possible in aesthetics, for example? You know, like, in other words, like the questions about the other values arise in each area. And I think maybe that, that's been a little bit underexplored still, at least with some of the intersections. Like you're saying maybe knowledge and aesthetics, actually. I think that is interesting, right? Maybe under under theorized even now i get the sense that analytic philosophers in their desire to be like scientists sort of think well aesthetics beauty pretty objects that's kind of beneath us you know yes i get the sense that there's that going on yeah and i think also the the subjectivity of beauty and and the apparent subjectivity of aesthetics you know makes you wonder whether this is an appropriate area of to be theorized at all. Do you know what I mean? Like if, if beauty really is subjective and even Kant says that, of course, then it doesn't take you long to go like, okay, so there is, there really is no subject matter here actually, you know, and that's exactly what say the positivist said about beauty, right? It's just like you saying it's beautiful. It's just expressing a kind of pro attitude. It doesn't really have any cognitive content independently, in which case it's not something we need to really worry about giving a theory of in fact we couldn't give a theory of it except to say like it's it's connected to your pleasure or something i guess when you groan out that that's beautiful or so i think you know aesthetics got discredited in the 20th century and by that i think above all and also the science on the science the scientism kind on the other side like we want something precise that we can or you know the linguistic analysis by contrast but then I think later in the, in the 20th century, uh, there was a, a revival of analytic aesthetics that was kind of interesting, like Nelson Goodman's work and Arthur Danto. It got a little more analytic mainstream, I think, toward the end of the 20th century, maybe. Or Yeah, but if there's some department that's angling to get their lighter ranking up, they're not like, ooh, we need to hire an aesthetics. We don't have an aesthetics person. Yeah, it's a problem for young aestheticians, as I recall. Like there was two jobs that mentioned aesthetics this year, but anyway, yeah, believable. Well, anyway, with that, with that interlude, I wanted to uh, I wanted to talk to you about knowledge, and it's interesting because I read your two papers um, arguing for a, a what would you call it a minimalist account of knowledge as being simply true belief, and I thought it, they were really intriguing papers. And it was amusing to me in this way that mid 20th century epistemology was it was it was dominated by the Gettier project, like the uh, how do you find this fourth criterion for knowledge? So we we know that it's 
that it's a belief that's true and it's justified and it has some other criterion that means that it isn't acquired in some accidental happenstance way. There was this whole project of trying to figure out what that fourth criterion was and people are still at it. Whereas you say, oh, I'm not looking for a fourth criterion for knowledge. I'm going to cut it back to just two. True belief. Done. It's amusing, if nothing else. So tell me a little bit about that project and what got you interested in it. You know, I'm glad you find it amusing because, yeah, well, you know, I was taking an epistemology seminar at Virginia in grad school with a guy named Jim Cargyle, and we were working through the Gettier problem for months, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and all the responses and, you know, the externalist responses. And, you know, we, and I did get exasperated kind of. And I also, and I got to say, Cargyle was a big joker. And I thought he would be pleased by this move. Like, like, just like, um, and it was partly like a perverse exercise in what, what I could give a decent argument for, like maybe even a sophistical exercise, right? Like, is this something that I could argue for? Actually, I, I didn't quite understand that it would piss epistemologists off if it could be sustained because it would kill the Gettier problem. Like it would never arise, the Gettier problem, et cetera. You know, the whole industry would have to anyway. But it also emerged from, I've always been sitting here and in the analytic departments too, skeptical of the rationalism, the cognitivism, the narrowness of what people will recognize as a legitimate way of arriving at a, a true belief. Like there was a serious point underneath this. Secretly, I was reading Kierkegaard. And you know, so, I mean, one question I had is, if God exists, and I believe that God exists, I was an atheist at the time, this has shifted a little bit, could that amount to knowledge? And, under, you know, under, you know, so I guess partly it was a, implicitly, and people did find it like this, did understand it like this. It was an attack on scientism. It was an attack on the standards of justification that were given in these theories that I found overween, overweeningly rationalistic. In the sense that, you know, like Plato wanted necessary and sufficient conditions, things that could be understood, articulated explicitly. Yes. Or, yeah, but, but also, I, I know when I can give good reasons. Only when I can give good reasons. And these are really narrowly construed as pro a series of propositions or something like that. And I thought this was an unrealistic picture of human beings as knowers. Like way too cognitive is what I'm saying. What I mean is like too much linguistic processing uh, is required, for example. You know, I think like we know a lot of stuff basically just by negotiating the environment, you know, uh, sensorily and kinetic, you know, kinesthetically. I was saying that it didn't have this impl this, these implications, but I was thinking it did. I think we don't know how we come to know a lot of stuff. We intuit it. Okay. I, you know, at a, I guess like at a certain point, Einstein can't really prove his intuitions, you know, but he has those intuitions and he may take himself to know. And I, you know, if he's right, I think, you know, maybe he does know and the proof follows or it's a rationalization or, you know what I mean? Like it's a way to get the insight. 
I guess I was always kind of in these analytic departments. I was sitting there as a kind of irrationalist, actually, and sort of trying to disguise that, but then trying to work it into <laughs> into the philosophy as well. That's interesting. I know what you mean about the worry about us being excess- excessively rationalistic. Like, you might think that the profession skews in that direction. Like, we, ha- we have a bias that would lead us to be like, like that, because yes. what are, what are we all about? We're all about showing other people how smart we are in, in this <laughs> yes. highly competitive environment. And uh, yes. <laughs> if, if you can, you, you can produce some really complicated arguments. Um, I always thought this, I always thought, imagine you know, Crispin, you've got some position, but it obviously entails P. And so I just sort of like, put my hand down on the table and say, well, that, op- that position's obviously false. You can accuse me of just begging the question, but, but if I give you some really complicated argument to show you it has exactly <laughs> the same outcome, that's not begging the question. That's a really good argument because yeah, it's, yeah. Perform- it's performatively better. Yeah. And we are good at that. And I was doing that when I got, when I came to this view too, like I'm performing in a grad seminar partly just how clever I can be with an argument, you know, not that the, not that the arguments were necessarily the best that the world has ever seen, but, um, you know, they used to teach those papers at the university of Arizona, like where they do a lot of epistemology and they would give this as a exercise show what's wrong with this in the clearest possible way. Like here's a ridiculous argument prove that it is here's an exercise every any competent philosopher should be able to show that this argument is bad <laughs> so i used to get like 10 or 12 like responses every semester people start emailing me there uh anyway i mean that's kind of embarrassing it's kind of pleasing in a way but it's uh <laughs> yeah i think it's interesting though i think it's interesting it and, seems to be getting a little more play lately, even. You know, it seems to be under revival a little bit. I don't know. But so, I mean, one way of thinking about this, this isn't explicitly, I think, what you say in, in your papers, but it's it's one way to go here is to think about suppose you're skeptical of the whole Gettier problem, that you don't think there needs to be a non-accidentality condition on knowledge. So you get it right and you're justified, that seems like it's enough. You don't need some further criterion, notwithstanding these weird cases that Edmund Gettier came up with. It seems like if, if you're on board that far, you could take it one step further. Like, isn't the whole requirement that, that knowledge even be justified, true belief, that the justification part of that, doesn't that seem like just another accidentality criterion that's, that's being imposed? Isn't it just the true belief that we're really concerned with? Right. And I mean, my one one thing I was saying is that the goal of all this, of course, is to believe the truth. And, you know, I mean, and so I started quoting philosophers who endorsed justification and maybe other conditions on knowledge as saying, well, of course, we all agree that the goal is true belief. OK. The, uh, all right. And so I'm going, like, OK, I thought the goal was knowledge. I think you've just said that knowledge is merely true belief. 
why not treat the justification procedures, which I'm not negating as in, invalid any particular procedure you're putting forward, you know, induction or something like that, as instrumental to the actual goal, which can be defined independently of those means of reaching it. And, but also that goal might be reachable by other means as well. So in, in, in one way, it was sort of a conceptual gerrymandering. Like, okay, so let's just remove that from the definition while preserving the fact that that's exactly how we're going to try to reach our goal, which is merely true belief. You know, that's what's good about science. That's what's good about science. If there is anything good about science is it, it yields true beliefs. So I'm not, you know, so on my view that knowledge is merely true belief, actually, if science is a good method or even the only method for reaching truth, then by all means, right? Like, uh, then I'm as scientist as scientific as anybody else, you know? And I was getting frustrated just by the state of play. And also the fact like these fourth conditions and, and so on, they started to have, you started to have to be omniscient to have any knowledge. <laughs> Because, you know, it's, like you, because it's like it's like um, condition for uh, point A, Roman numeral three, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, okay. yeah, there is no fact that defeats your knowledge, that defeats your belief. Right. Like there, is, there are no defeaters. So that means like nowhere in the universe is there a fact that contradicts us. OK, so now you're stipulating like just like it's infallible. Yeah, that's an external condition, right? Like you don't have to know there are no defeaters, right? There just have to be no defeaters. Right, right. I thought. Right. Well, so like, I mean, that's a pretty strong condition, man. Like uh, I would never be in a position to ascertain whether I knew in, in a lot, well, in many cases anyway, under those conditions. I mean, and so I, I started to think like this has gone pretty far from the ordinary language use of no. You know, like we know stuff all the time, you know, so let's talk about I mean, I sort of would go back to a GE Moore type of thing. Like, let's talk. Let's start with what we do take ourselves to know, like the paradigm cases of knowledge. Maybe let's start there instead of our alleged intuitions that like a lucky guess isn't knowledge or however that that intuition gets pumped up that you need justification. Let's start talking about like the cases, you know, the ordinary uses of the term knowledge where, you know, just perfectly ordinary things. I'm not saying that there's no cosmic defeater or that I can refute external world skepticism, you know? I'm saying it's raining outside and I know that. Okay, so let's let's start with trying to account for that instead of like, how could you be infallible on this or whatever, you know, I don't know. Are you familiar with Michael Polanyi and his work, Personal Knowledge? <sighs> Uh, like only in a vague way. I, I think I looked at, at some of his stuff back in the 80s, probably, or not early 90s. You ought to revisit it. I, I think he's a very underrated philosopher. I was for a while okay. a board member of the Michael Polanyi Society, but it didn't seem like I could get very many young people interested in, in his work. But he had the idea that we know more than we can say, that most knowledge is tacit, and that all explicit knowledge has to rely on tacit knowledge and tacit okay. knowledge is, is something like familiarity, right? So you have to okay. be familiar with things before you can articulate anything. So if you think that you're going to arrive at the philosophical essence of something, you know, by reflecting on what you know, explicitly, you're just fundamentally misguided about that. 
Huh. Yeah, that's interesting. Does he go with, is that run across the knowing how and knowing that distinction? Like, yeah, I, I think it does. I think it does. So I'm not too familiar with the literature on this distinction, but I'm suspicious of this sort of divide, right? That, um, makes knowledge in the philosophically proper sense has got to be propositional. Yeah. I mean, most languages, I think, have got this distinction between knowing in some propositional sense and familiarity, like I know Crispin, I know my way around my apartment, that kind of thing. I know how to do a swing out and Lindy Hop dancing, that kind of stuff. But it seems to me that... Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I used to be in a performance group. Yeah. All right, man. Excellent. Yeah. I swing out in Lindy Hop. All right. Not everyone does knows that. Yeah. I, I, although I've been getting super rusty w- with the uh, pandemic and all, you know, not that many opportunities. I know some dancers. It's a problem. Yeah. Oh, it's bad. It's bad. Yeah. I think certainly our ordinary sense of, ta- of talking about knowledge does not give us that kind of bifurcation between knowing that and knowing how. I mean, so I, I guess like the classic example, this is Ryle, right? Is knowing how to ride a bicycle. It's, it's more than you can express in propositions, right? It's like you could know everything, you know, you could read an excellent book on how to ride a bicycle and still fall down. You got to get the feel of it. You got to, it's know how or whatever. It doesn't amount to propositional knowledge. I guess is the idea. Right. Or like I've been a, a writer for a long time. I definitely know how to write, but I have to say that my knowledge as a teacher of writing isn't where my writing level is because, yeah, because I look at students papers and I can't say, okay, here are the four things that you need to do, you know? And I don't know if it's even possible for me to convey my knowledge to them in the, in, as efficiently as I would like, because my knowledge comes from every day since I was 15. I was like looking at drafts of stuff that I've written and published a hundred things, you know, for various newspapers and stuff. And I just can't talk someone through that. Yeah, like, I, you know, this is this is my story too. I've I've written every day. I write for newspapers. I and like I always think like I can help my younger colleagues, maybe like people who say they're stuck because they can't write. And I think like, Oh, because I can never not, you know, I can always write, not always write well, maybe, but like I never am stuck uh, actually. And I always think I can help people, you know? And then I start talking and it's like, I know how I do it. And, but then I start saying like, okay, just like let it flow. Or something like it's just it's it's it it doesn't help anybody like what I'm saying you know but they must they're complexly intertwined though right of course because you have to have know how to have propositional knowledge right you have to know how to speak a language you have to know how to interpret certain kinds of experiences or I could see various ways of worrying about that there is a fundamental distinction or something like that yeah or like. To know, in order to know how to ride a bike, you have to know that that is a bicycle. Uh, well, you don't have to know that. Well, do you? I don't know. Um, hmm. I mean, you can't if you if you say I know how to ride a bicycle, but you don't know that's not a bicycle. That's a harmonica. You don't know how to 
great bicycle. <laughs> here, I got a bicycle right here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, your harmonica. No, I just, I just bought one of those. I bought one of those uh, <laughs> uh, twenty-four hole ones. And uh, I know, I know how to play these. Well, that's nice. That's nice. I, uh, I, I picked one up because you know I like music and jazz, and uh, I really wanted to learn saxophone when I was younger, but I figure it's too late, so I'm going to have to learn something easier now. The harmonicas can sound like a sax, quite quite like a sax, I think. Um, yeah. But anyway, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, okay. Uh, so Polanyi, right. So, all right, say that 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 uh, that that position again. Like I I, may, I folded it too quick into the know how know that. Yeah. So position. so his position is that we know more than we can say. So. All explicit knowledge, all knowledge that we can articulate or put in linguistic form draws on a broader base of knowledge that we can't articulate. And that stems from like our just awareness, our, our like bodily presence in an area. Um, yeah. No that knowledge. Right by yeah. Um, I think it's right too, and, and I can't find anybody to engage this. I mean, it sounds a little like the play, the knowledge is recollection thing too. Like it, it, it might like sort of account for the feeling, you know, that Plato is registering or Socrates is registering when he says that you know everything you know, everything you can like you can say you know, is something that you are actually recalling. And you're you're learning to say it kind of like you have to relearn to express it or something like that. But you're of course, he has this supernatural explanation that maybe Polonius and availing himself of like it's because I do think, yeah, I, I mean, I, I I always want to like bring the ground back to the you know, a more direct experience or like a maybe a pre-verbal experience or. Uh, but, you know, like the, it's it's. Of course, it's controversial whether there is any like sort of pre-propositional, pre-verbal, or pre-linguistic experience. I don't know if that's what Polanyi means exactly, but you know, like uh, someone like Rorty, uh, but many others too. Like, uh, like there's no uninterpreted experience. Like, there's no, there's, there isn't this ground of, you know, chaotic. Un, uninterpreted experience like I'm experiencing lamps and computers and printers and walls you know I'm not like having experience and then processing it that way I'm experiencing it that way to begin with or something like that um, but yeah I do want to move away from the exclusively propositional kinds of views I guess yeah that's right that's right and I do think if we make that the paradigm of knowledge, um, getting there to begin with is going to be a, a problem. And so you give the, the skeptic a huge leg up. If, the, if you can't know things on a, on a non-cognitive sort of level first. Right. But then how do you, what if, you know, but how do you respond to challenges to that? You know, like, okay, so I know this on a non-cognitive level or I, or I'm saying this because I know this on a non-cognitive level. So that like, how can that be challenged? You know, does that provide any reasons or how does it provide reasons? And are those reconstructable or something like that? You know, I guess these are 
the sorts you of mean, problems that arise. You mean like somebody says, I know something, but I can't t- explain to you the cognitive, my cognitive reasons for knowing it. Right. Like I, mean, I intuit this. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, that's, yeah, but that's a difficult practical problem, but yeah. I don't think there's any question that we find ourselves with that problem, right? Right. You mean intuition leading us right, kind of, or like not being able to say. Um, not be, I mean, not being able to say how, you know, and also other people telling us they know something. Maybe. I mean, one that come, has come up a lot in my life is like spiritually. Somebody knows something spiritually, but they can't give you grounds for it. And they know they yes. can't give you grounds for it. Um, but it's the same thing, I guess, when I appeal to certain kinds, certain moral intuitions, if somebody rejects it. Like, oh, I feel the same way, but I don't take that as evidential. Uh, what do you do? But shrug and say, okay, I guess we have to part ways over this, but it doesn't undermine my my confidence necessarily. Yeah, of course, like if you, you know, the role of intuition is interesting because that's almost the only thing that drives the justification condition on knowledge, right? Is like we all intuit that something that say a lucky guess isn't knowledge. Uh and now the the other case though, and and this is what raises problems, I guess. I, now I'm going the other way. I, I suppose I'm arguing the other way. Um, uh, is that, um, of course, intuition can lead you wrong, right? Like I intuit that I don't know what Hillary Clinton is torturing children in the basement of that pizza parlor. Like I, that seems pretty like uh, specific thing to start intuiting. But you know, of course, you can. You're in people's intuitions lead them wrong all the time, probably. So then, to what status is the claim of in, in that this is an intuitive? I mean, there, there there could be like principled, you know. I guess I mean this is a great question. Like, is there ineffable experience? So, like the first line of the Tao Te Ching, right? The 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 real Tao cannot be spoken. Like this book actually can't tell you what you came to this book to find out because it. It invades all language, you know, or maybe Wittgenstein or, you know, like uh, what cannot be spoken. But does that mean it's not anything or some? I mean, it depends on how you read Wittgenstein. Yeah. I guess. So, I mean, my understanding of, of that early Wittgenstein was that if you can't if you can't put it into words, it's meaningless or something. Whereas I thought the Tao Te Ching was saying something else like. This is um, a deeper level of knowledge in virtue of the fact that it can't be articulated. Mm-hmm. That's that's what the Tao Te Ching is saying. Yeah, but there's a there's a mystical reading of the Tractatus that you know, and I've heard people put this forward. Like, what's really important, what's actually significant, is the stuff that cannot be spoken. Is the is the uh, like the realm of the meaningless, which encompasses most of life, I guess, for Wittgenstein, actually, you know, so I don't know, there's, but I, I mean, I see why, yeah, it's just meaningless, shut up, or whatever, you know, but, uh, but yeah, there's a, a kind of Tao Te Ching reading of the Tractatus, I guess, that, like, what's really significant in life, like, what's meaningful in life might be stuff that we cannot, that is meaningless, or appears meaningless, or at least, it appears meaningless when you try to get it into a language, you know, or something, but I admit he doesn't quite say things like that, but. Okay. So I wanted to go back to, um, the Mino, Plato's Mino. Okay. That, 
really makes this distinction between knowledge and true belief, like a, like a normative distinction and raises this sort of puzzle, which is Socrates is talking this, about. This is the like, classic. Yes. This is the classic statement. I mean, this is the, the, the locus classicus of the justification condition on knowledge. Like this is the first statement of it, I think. Right. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And, you know, so there's this discussion of, so suppose somebody has a true belief about the road to Larissa versus somebody else knows the road to Larissa. Why is it better to know? Like each one could be the guide, right? Socrates interlocutor, I, I don't remember if it's Mino or someone else at this point, but Socrates interlocutor says, oh, but like the person with, the, with merely the true opinion, he could be wrong, right? And Socrates says, well, not if we stipulate that his opinion is true. Yes. Um, so that leaves open the question, why is the one with the justified true belief better? And I think the answer is this, and it's a, a fairly simple answer which is suppose you're on the road to Larissa and you're with the guy who has the, just the true opinion. And you say, all right, so this is the, this is the road to Larissa, right? That's Larissa where we're going. And he says, uh, uh pr- pretty sure. I think so. You'd like, whoa. Um, so we're not, you can't give me any reason to believe that we're not going to end up in a completely different city. And I would be nervous the entire trip. Yes. Whereas, the, whereas the other guy uh, who's like, yes, I know I've traveled this road, you know, 40 times before and I was born there and I know the way to Larissa. Then you, you'd think like, oh, well, that's a relief. So there is a practical difference between the two. Well, and uh, I mean, but the practical difference just seems to be in the how much certainty you express. You know, in other words, like, it, I mean, it's sort of turning out that this person doesn't think they know, you know, the truth about where Larissa is after all. When challenged, they're unsure. I mean, it seems like the difference there is just the amount of certainty that I can convey, which is not going to necessarily track how good my reasons actually are, right? I mean, but I guess I can see a conversation where you're going like, okay, have you been this way before? You know, like, uh, why do you think this is the right way, Larissa? And the answer is like, okay, let's just stipulate this person is subjectively certain. You know, they're absolutely certain they know. Yeah, the answers might be unsatisfactory in a way that would bring you to doubt, right? I guess that that's that's interesting. You might not want to be around a person who had such extreme confidence on what appeared to be thin grounds. Right. Of course, if, if they go right every single time, you're going to start wondering things like, First of all, you're going to start trusting them. And second of all, you're going to start wondering whether they have some kind of way of knowing after all. Maybe that they're not expressing or they can't express even. I mean, as long as someone keeps giving you true beliefs, they're perfectly reliable, right? There is, they're by stipulation. They're equally reliable to someone who knows in the, in the sense of having justification and true belief. That is, they're both right all the time. <laughs> um you know, I in as a practical matter, I would rather trust someone who basically believes for reasons. I mean, it depends on the subject matter too, though. 
in a case like that, I definitely want it, right? Like like a a real like factual, specific factual belief where you know we have kind of well attested ways of gaining knowledge and well you know justifications for. Uh, claiming to know. But then there might be many subtler, more difficult matters. I mean, maybe value questions, for instance, that raise completely different, you know, and maybe where intuition or something plays a different role or where kind of direct experience plays a different role or is being expressed in a different way or I don't know. Anyway. So, I mean, I'm not demanding that this stuff all be articulable, you know, yeah. like if, some, if somebody's teaching me how to dance and they're like, the swing out just doesn't feel quite right. I don't need that person to articulate the reasons. Or like if I'm in war and I'm on a patrol and this, you know, battle hardened sergeant is like, okay, get down. I don't need to say like, what is the grounds for that belief? Like, no, like you do, you do it and you assume that they're picking up on something, even if they can't tell you what it is because yeah. their instinct okay. is honed by experience. So you had experiences just, like that, right? Have you had experiences uh, like that? I've been, I haven't had experiences like that, but I have been deployed to Iraq and then to Afghanistan. And right. okay. yeah, so, so this is I, more than just a hypothetical. Like this is, yeah, it's, kind of it's, it's more than a, people. it's more than just a hypothetical. Yeah. Yeah. So I know the sense of like looking around and getting the sense that oh, something doesn't feel quite right. Um, yeah. And having that be a very, unsettling feeling, you know, and possibly reliable too, and possibly reliable. Yeah. So, yeah. but I would say if you've got somebody who keeps giving you knowledge reliably at a certain point, it would be unreasonable to think they're just guessing it right. You would yes. be, you would be more rational to think that they have some um, honed intuition that is yes. what's giving them the justification. Yes, that's true. You definitely would think that. And, and no I, doubt you'd be right, you know, in anything but like a invented, you know, thought experiment. Absolutely. Right. You start to think that this person has some kind of access that might might be reconstructable into a justification. I mean, I'm also thinking about like, OK, so under what circumstances do we I, I guess I should try to make the basic case a little bit if we're going down, uh, going down this road, like. This will be maybe familiar from G.E. Moore and Austin or something like this. Like, in what cases is it appropriate to demand a justification? In, in what cases do we take, as a practical matter, in ordinary language, in what cases do we take a justification to be criterial for someone's knowledge claim? You know, so, you know, Austin's examples for, you know, like, you know, we go out to, like, we're walking around this area. I live very rural, Pennsylvania there's a pen for an animal in there. And you say like, what, what animals in there? I say, it's a pig. And you say like, okay, now what's, why do you think it's a pig and not a cow or whatever? I say like, okay, well, those are pig droppings right there. And that's the kind of pig enclosure that they use out here or whatever. Uh, like I give you evidence it's appropriate, but you know, so this is Austin's case. Now the pig comes waddling out standing right in front of us. Now, if you're asking me like, how do I know that's a pig? like produce your justification. Now I think like, okay, you're casting aspersions on my sanity or something like that. The problem though, with those kinds of cases is with the criticism of Austin generally is there are like philosophical grounds. And then they're like norms of conversation that come apart. Like if somebody said, right. how do you know that's a pig? 
I'm like, okay, you're messing with me, you know? Yeah. Just go away. You're being annoying. But um, that doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't such grounds. That just that. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, yeah. Right. But I mean, but, but this begins to seem like it has nothing to do with our ordinary practice. And actually, I mean, are there such grounds? So I start going, like, look at the folds of its skin. Like, now I start, or, no, here's a hand and here's another. All right, the more the more example. Like, okay, what, you're going to say, like, I don't know that until, I, what, I can refute philosophical skepticism? Oh, come on. You know, like, I don't know what you're talking about, but it's not what we call knowledge at all. And in, in practice, we do not always demand justifications, frequently not. We often reject the demand for justification as ridiculous or inappropriate. Often, if we could produce justification, it would look nothing like what really like the process that produced this, you know, the idea that this is a pig. You know, like, I guess I, I'm a philosophy professor. I could say, like, I'm having a pig, piggy sense impression. You know, I think that the image on my retina is producing a mental image that and the image, the mental image resembles the retinal image, which resembles a pig or something like that. Okay, like I'm going, uh, but that has nothing to do with anything. All right. Are we giving a theory of knowledge or a theory of some stipulated term, you know, that philosophers use as a term of art? Yeah, Yeah, this is a good point, because. Um, what terms are philosophers in original interested in to begin with? It's got a, um, It's like our ordinary practices, our ordinary way of talking gives rise to the things that philosophers find interesting. And so it seems like it puts some constraints on how many intuitions about those things we can reject before we're no longer talking about that thing anymore. Right. Or just just not even intuitions, but our practices. I guess I'm suspicious of the way something like the Mino drives intuitions. I think he he leads you by the nose into these intuitions. I think the justification intuition is kind of produced in intro class usually. You know, like I I'm, I don't think it's a natural uh, <laughs> um, conclusion that everyone draws. I think every, people get led to it, but you know, I don't know. I don't know. I mean. I think it's a pretty normal intuition. Suppose you arrive safely at Larissa and then you said, okay, so how did you know that? And then the guy gives some, I, I overheard somebody say, you know, in the market that you take this turn and then you take that turn. And I thought that's probably right. And you'd think, oh, that really, you really didn't know. I mean, you didn't look at a map. You didn't, you know, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. Here's where I think it gets ethically intertwined because it seems like, we could feel some kind of resentment toward the person who treated us yeah. this way, right? Like somebody who <laughs> who says, I know, but they don't have grounds. And it's one of those cases where you it would expect them to have some grounds for their belief. It's not one of these right. here's a hand cases. It seems like yeah. it seems like it, that that's reckless. It seems like it's reckless to proceed with without a having done more of an investigation and yes. yeah, that's where, that's where I see the kind of ethical entanglement coming in. Completely. Yes. Very much so. Yeah. And then we start to form judgments about how this person comes to believe things and then, and how reliable they're likely to be in the future as a guide, for instance. Yeah. And I, you know, that's, 
yeah, I had a good reply to that, but now it's slipping out of my, uh, I, maybe not a good reply, but, um, all right. So, I, I mean, these are kind of moves I make in those papers, right? Like, so for example, it'd be sort of a rare case for someone to, to become sure that they know how to get to Larissa from just overhearing some random person in the market. Like you'd have to cease to be aware that you were guessing. We're imagining a pretty thorough self-deception or a pretty insane person. Like, and, and often these intuition pumps do that because they're so cursory. So, like, you know, you 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 know, you stick a finger on the racing form and you say, "I'm going to bet on horse seven or whatever." Like, you don't know that. But in the normal case, you wouldn't really, you wouldn't believe it either, right? You, you'd be aware that you were guessing. Now, on the other hand, though, of course, people do come by ridiculous beliefs that they take themselves to know. You know, unfortunately, like some of these conspiracy theories or whatever it might be. But there, there they're in, embedded in sort of a whole environment of belief. I think it's a little harder to. Um, yeah. So I let, but let's imagine, for example, a conspiracy theory like QAnon. OK, QAnon is just ridiculous. It's just something that it, it was made up by Russian intelligence. OK, just to see if they could fuck with uh, American rednecks or whatever. Is that okay? is that true? Is that true? Uh, you know. Uh, I've heard worse, uh, hypotheses. Okay. Yeah. But now, okay. But now suppose that it turns out that one of the features of QAnon is actually unbelievably, it's quite true. You know, I mean, actually some of it's a little believable, like Bill Clinton is involved in, uh, a a network of, you know, sex with underage girls or whatever. Uh, you know, like like elements of it turn out to be true just by coincidence. Now, someone takes themselves to know that, right? Because they are in this internet environment where, you know, they Google X and, and or whatever it is, and it all comes back confirming the conspiracy. So that's a little more. That's a little harder of a case. Or we but can I, actually make actually, this. We can make it stronger, right? Like, just it's the case that most people form their political views for reasons that don't have much to do with evidence based on what their personality is, what their social group is like, what media environment they inhabit. And so let's suppose that one of the two major epistemic bubbles really is basically right. So all of the people there would have just gotten the issues right because they, they happened based on features about them that had nothing to do with their cognitive virtues or anything to have to have found themselves in the right silo on the internet um, yeah yeah this is kind of true i think i mean it's, it? a, it's a little it's a little true i mean because i just i sort of despise both sides on exactly these grounds like you know obviously you just believe on social for social reasons like i can tell you don't give a shit about the reasons actually in fact you're just sort of parroting the sentences that other people on your side say and you know it it doesn't hardly matter what the reasons are it's social cohesion or whatever so on that ground i was skeptical about climate change for the longest time i mean it embarrassed me anyway but until maybe 2010 or something like that you know not that i was denying it but i was going like you know these people actually they're kind of a herd they all kind of repeat the same thing like whatever but you know what? <laughs> their, their silo was right. Or and, and the same silo is a lot better on, say, like masking. You know, like it turns out like I kind of despise the sciencey herd. 
but there's a lot of truth in the sciencey bubble, right? That's not available in the, you know, uh, like masking really does help. Vaccination is really, you know, has very few harmful side effects and is uh, effective, you know. Um, what was it that made you that made you change on on climate change in ten or eleven years ago? It was interesting. It was, it was the the. Climate change deniers, I think, leaked or obtained a whole bunch of emails. From, yeah, the climate gate. Yeah, yeah, climate gate. Okay, so like, yeah, it was a Penn State researcher, like one of the major. It, I mean, it, it kind of showed in a way what I suspected, which is, like, one part of this was like we got to figure out what the facts are. Another part of it is we got to persuade people that this is extremely urgent. Okay. We need all this regulatory apparatus. Like part of it is focused on the research. A lot of it is focused on the communication of the research, which is emergency. You know, we need XYZ international regulations and everything like this. Okay. And that, and that fed back into the research in a way that I had suspected that it had. I thought the research was chastened after that. What I saw after that convinced me more. Like they seem much more intent on like, okay, let's go with the absolutely precise as possible temperature measurements in different locations. You know, to me, it became less for a moment anyway, it became less propagandistic and I trusted it more or something like that. Plus, I guess I felt I felt it too. I spent a lot of long time denying that any of this volatile weather had any <laughs> bearing on the question at all. But, uh, you know, I started being kind of convinced. I mean, I, I even thought I, I felt that the climate of my own region was shifting to some extent. I continue yeah. to be troubled by the thought that if there were somebody who raised really substantial criticisms of, of this, like within academia, what would happen to that person? There was somebody like this, I think named Roger Pilkey Jr. at University of Colorado, who was a climate scientist and he he raised some questions and he got like hounded out of the discipline. And now he's a political scientist now, I think. I didn't go deep in the weeds enough to know whether whether he was right or his critics were right or or, or what. But it just made me think that it would be like being a, a psychologist and saying, yes, I think uh, some of the observed racial disparities are based on genetics. I mean, they would just hound, hound you out of the discipline, and it's just it's hard happened. for it's just hard for me to to trust right. the output yes. when when I know that there are unsayables and there are unthinkables. And I agree. Even if the unthinkables are wrong, the fact that they're there undermines confidence for me. And this is one of my main arguments for why we need to have free speech in the broader sense. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. And and when I feel that kind of constraint, whether it's social constraint or, or kicking people out of the academy or something like this for violations of like where, you know, I mean, I guess there's some I can see firing someone or, you know, or just like kind of crushing their uh, their writings for certain reasons, if they're screeching fascists or something like that. You know what I mean? Like we but. Uh, yeah, absolutely, man. And and so it arouses my suspicion as soon as I feel that it's unanimity that's driving this. There's incredible social pressure to agree with this. And that made me skeptical of climate change for the longest time. And so I, it can lead you wrong to go the other way, too. You know what I mean? Like, just because everyone around me is saying it, it doesn't mean it's false. 
because that's, that's right. my impulse. Uh, that's right. You know? That's right. Uh, but it's just like for me, in, ter- in terms of like co- cost benefit analysis, far better that there are a few kooks who deny climate change who are still publishing. Far b- better that there are a few people with actual racist views in political science departments. Far better, you know, fill in the blanks than to have a culture where y- you must not dissent. And then it leads me to think, how how much of a of a sway is that is that having on determining what the community is like? Like if it were the other way, at least I could know. At least I could say, okay, these are the people, these are the criticisms of their work. They're not yeah. that many of them. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So I was going to say, um, going back to the earlier point about uh, about you, you take justification and as to being sort of an instrumental thing, so a kind of externalist approach to justification. So w- what's better about about true beliefs that are justified versus those that are not justified? Well, intrinsically, nothing. A true belief is a true belief. But if you want to get more true beliefs, follow this method. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah. E- even from my point of view, it might be uh, reasonable to mistrust the Larissa person in the sense that, you know, there are reasons to think if the normal standards of justification for something like that are good ways of ascertaining the truth about things like that, then you have good reasons to think this person is going to be unreliable if they don't meet the normal standards of justification, because this is a fairly appropriate case for that. You know what I mean? Right. Right. But it seems like being trustworthy as a person, I guess, I think that seems like it's got some intrinsic value, at least like friendships and human relationships of certain kinds are plausible candidates for things that have intrinsic value. Oh yeah. And trust has got a lot to do with that. Right. So my being trustworthy in that sense is like intrinsically important. It isn't like just a purely instrumental thing. Yes. That's true. Uh, I I guess, I mean, I, I guess this is like a, it's a superficial point on a profound observation, you know, but I think I can account for that just in the sense that if these really are, if rational standards really are, let's say, the best way to get to the truth, like just speaking generally, whatever that means, rational standards in a particular case, you know, then people that apply those habitually are more reliable and more trustworthy in that respect. If you're pursuing knowledge, it would be, that is, if you're trying to find the truth, it would be a good idea to trust them more than others, I guess you'd say, even on my, uh, even on the minimalist conception, I suppose. Given some background conditions that, that these really are the best, which I think like everyone's stipulating too, right? Like, okay, so, but there are, I think one move is to detach the justification condition from the truth condition in the sense that you got to say something like it's, it's more than instrumental. Uh, justification is more than instrumental to truth. You are trying to say something like this, right? Like it's, but I'm saying like, but are you saying more than that? Because you're saying like it's instrumental to being, continuing to know the truth or being reliable about the truth. I guess, I don't know. I think about my beliefs being justified and my being a trustworthy person. Yeah. And to, to me, justification, I want to closely link with honesty like I'm right. Oh, I, I was going to say, I'm sorry. I got, I got it. Okay. To res- I think to respond, you have to detach 
the justification condition from the truth condition. Like you have to uh, have a conceptual justification that's not instrumental to truth, not merely instrumental to truth. Some of the virtue ethics things, I think, began to do this. Like, so you have like maybe a deontological virtue epistemology. So like there, uh, this is an intrinsic value. Like honesty is an example like this. It's not just that honesty is instrumental to truth. It is, okay, in this case, uh, you know, I mean, it, it is overall, but it is it is of intrinsic detachable value as well uh, that can, kind of fold into the sort of paramount epistemic value of knowledge or something like that. That's, that's also what's known as the swamping problem, right? Like uh, why, um, I guess the example from Zagzebski is, you have a coffee maker and it makes your cup of coffee this time, even though it's a totally fucked up coffee maker in some way, hasn't it done as good as it can do for this cup of coffee? So what value does it add if it's a really good, super excellent, technical, reliable coffee maker? It adds yeah. no value to this little cup of coffee. Yeah. All right. You know, it's so... Yeah. So Zagzewski says like the excellence of the coffee maker is like a separate is a separable question. And the question is, what value does it add? Right. Like what. And and you can say what value it adds, like because the coffee maker has the virtue of a, of a coffee maker, like it's a reliable coffee maker. It's a you know, it's a good coffee maker. So that's but I, I don't know. I don't know, though, if I if I make that cup of coffee from that machine and it makes the, the coffee that turns out to be it's just good. Am I going to sip it with the same amount of, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Like I might sip it more consciously. <laughs> I might be more reluctant to serve it to my guests. I mean, it right? Like the, it, might not, <laughs> it might not be exactly the same. Well, we're stipulating that it is, I guess, in this thought experiment. Like it, it, it makes this one cup of coffee right. Now, okay. you could be, if, if you know of this coffee maker that it's not a virtuous coffee maker. Yeah. Yeah, you 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 might sip carefully or whatever. Yeah, but, so uh, that's the thing is, is you got to build in all these stipulations to the case in order to get this these cases where here's one instance of a true belief and it would be no worse. The only difference is this one thing that it's produced reliably or something. But it, practically speaking, there's well, no difference. Okay. Right, but but the problem as presented is, what does it mean to say S knows the P? Yeah. Not not what does it mean that S knows the P and P prime and P double prime and you know what I mean? Like uh, I'm saying, like what does it? So what does it mean to that this coffee maker just made a good cup of coffee? You know, well it doesn't mean that it made the next good cup of coffee or the last cup of coffee was good. It did as good as a coffee maker can do on this cup of coffee. So S. So I guess part of it is by the way the problem is framed, which might be the might be a problem, right? In other words, there might not be these isolated little propositions quite like this, right? You know what I mean, like, it, yeah, it might be a constellation of propositions that were, yeah. So it might be even the possibility of going for a true belief analysis might be partly produced by the artificial narrowness of the theory of knowledge is a question of what is the analysis of S knows that P a particular proposition, right? you know, on a particular occasion. Yeah. But 
Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. I also have always thought about like with the swamping problem, why does it need to be the case that every instance of knowledge is like superior in some fundamental way to every counterpart of true belief? That just seems to be okay. much stronger than what our intuitions yield us. Like our, our, I do have the intuition that it's better for the guide to know the road to Larissa than just to truly believe it. I have that intuition. But I don't think that generalizes, or at least it's not obvious to me. Okay. Every instance of knowledge is just inherently better than every instance of true belief. Right. I guess it's supposed to be that knowledge is an intrinsic value or the or the paramount uh, epistemic value. But that seems true. Like in other words, like it in most ca- in many cases, it might just make no difference, even though there might be a difference. You know what I mean? Like in just casual conversation, or like you're not. But in other cases, it might be absolutely key to work out whether this is a case of knowledge or or mere true belief, like when something important or is is at stake. You know, that's that's reasonable. But I I think like I guess Zagzebski's view maybe is that knowledge is is this value category. The question is like why do we prefer knowledge to true belief? But I think maybe you could, that's answerable in 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 ways you're suggesting too, though. Yeah, I mean, there's there are probably contexts where we don't care about the difference between knowledge and true belief. Um, no, it, it might not make a difference in in low stakes contexts. Right, it, it typically doesn't because, like, with most things, we don't want to check, and we don't really need to know how the other person might check or has checked. Uh, you know, maybe we're just casually, you know, believing that you know, they went to the store today or I don't know, whatever, you know, like, it's just like, I don't need, right. Yeah. I think that's interesting. You know, I actually think I invented the swamping problem, by the way. So I guess one question is, as you read those two papers is, you know, do they, the knowledge is merely true belief and why knowledge is merely true belief. Do those papers state the swamping problem in the early nineties? Because I still want credit for that sucker. Because I think I stated it. But did just, you call just, it? You didn't call it the swamping problem, though. No, I did not. No. <laughs> uh, Damn it. Well, well, you know what? Sometimes philosophy, like you'll, you'll, a philosopher will be credited with some idea, and then you go back and say, "Oh wait, like that was in Ross or something." And right, but you didn't label it and like put, you know, yeah, yeah, underline it, and and somewhere and somewhere he's still pissed off about it. W.D. Ross, you know, he's like, he's, he's spinning, man. He's going like, God damn, man. I had that in 35. Like what, what is, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We've covered a lot of ground. Is there anything, any I's you'd like to dot or T's you'd like to cross or, or T I's you'd like to, to cross. That would be novel. <laughs> <laughs> That's good, man. That's good. One. No, I think I'm, I, I'm good. I, you know, I hope, I don't know how coherent I was, but I think it was, I enjoyed the conversation. I did too, immensely. And we've got lots of other, other things to talk about. So I'll have to have you on again sometime. Sounds good.